Good morning, everybody. Please pray with me. Father God, you are a great and mighty God, and you are most worthy of all of our worship and adoration and praise. Lord, we come together today not simply to enjoy the benefits of family, not simply to enjoy the benefits of great music, not simply to enjoy the benefits of social interaction and friendship. Though all of those things are important to us and we know are important to you. But we come together today, Lord, because we desire a real and ongoing and vibrant relationship with you, the King of the Universe. And as so, we recognize, God, that you are truly worthy of our surrender, of our obedience, of our worship, and of our praise. And so we worship you. Help us now, Lord, to worship you in an ongoing fashion as we hear from your word in a story that is difficult and slightly obscure. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us receptive hearts and may the ministry of your spirit be working among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like you are your own worst enemy? You've heard it said of somebody else, and maybe you have said it yourself at one point. That that person, Sally, Sally would be so good at blank, but she just keeps getting in her own way. There's a whole pop psychology built around people becoming their own worst enemies. Therapists talk about it. Leadership manuals and leadership books often have quotes about it. Financial planners will often cite that individuals are their own worst enemy, financially speaking. And there's even a 90s rock album called My Own Worst Enemy. Sometimes when we look at our relationships with God, we feel like our own worst enemy, don't we? I mean, those things that we do, the cycles that we repeat, the words that we say, those same sins again and again and again. They seem to prohibit us from growing in our relationship with God. And today as we turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 9, we see a people who in many ways become their own worst enemy. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me. Open to Judges chapter 9. It's found on page 208 of that Pew Bible. If you are new here today, you're visiting, or maybe you're here for the baptisms, you're coming into the middle of a series in this book of Judges in which God's people, Israel, are taking hold of the land that God has given them, and yet they have bad leader after bad leader, and they fall prey to sin and temptation again and again. And as we see in Judges 9, that these ones who are supposed to be God's people, they're supposed to be committed to him, they become their own worst enemy. And it's a process in which they get there. It happens in sequence that we'll learn from today. This process is is cyclical in some ways throughout the book of Judges as we've talked about. And this cycle starts at the end of chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles open, look with me at the end of chapter 8, starting at verse 33. The judge, or the military leader, Gideon, had just died. And it says, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. 
And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done in Israel. And so Israel is starting to become their own worst enemy, and they do so first by turning from God. In some ways, that sounds elementary, doesn't it? I mean, hey, turn from God, it's not going to bode well from you, for you, right? And we understand that, and we get that. And yet, there's three specific things talked about in that very short few couple of verses that describe what it looked like for them turning from God. The first is that there's danger in not remembering. It says that Israel did not remember the Lord their God. This was the Lord who delivered them from the hand of their enemies who were on all sides of them. There's danger in not remembering. There's danger when we don't remember. It's just like us when we come to those moments of difficulty and we forget all that the Lord has done for us. We forget the fact that we were lost and now we're found. <laughs> we forget the fact that we ha- now have a joy in the person and work of God that we could have never had of our own. We come to a crossroads and, and there's an option for us to go this way or to go that way. And in that moment, do we remember? <laughs> There's danger in not remembering. And when we forget the benefit of what God has done for us in our lives and end up turning against him despite that benefit, well, the thing that happens is that it results in actions that we feel like might be to our advantage in the moment, but are actually contributing to our disadvantage. There's danger and not remembering. The second thing that we see in this process of turning is that they fail to honor God's servant. It says they did not exercise steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done in Israel, verse 35. Now, Gideon was in some ways, a very mixed leader, as we've talked about over the last number of weeks. But nevertheless, as the text says, he did a number of very good things for this people of Israel, most notably delivering them from the hand of an oppressing nation. And by not showing gratitude to the servant of how God chose to work, what essentially the Israelites are doing are not showing gratitude to God himself. And that leads to the third of their process of turning, and that is that they begin to express their loyalty to another. It says in verse 33 that they turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. Baal Bareth, the, the name Baal Bareth means Lord of the Covenant. And so this is the covenant people of God, Israel, who were supposed to be in relationship with him. And the problem that they're now having is one of covenant loyalty. They were God's people. To be in covenant with God means they made promises to God. We will follow you. We will be obedient to your ways. And in exchange for those promises, God says to them, I will be, my, be your God and you will be my people. And you will have all the benefits of being in relationship with the king of the universe. 
being in covenant with him. And even though he is repeatedly gracious and repeatedly merciful and repeatedly saving them, both physically and spiritually, they are not loyal. You know, the practice of loyalty has really come on hard times these days, hasn't it? Are you a loyal person? Loyalty fades when the importance of the individual takes priority or it takes the first place. And we can see how self-centered we've become as a society and maybe some of us individually, even here today, struggle with this idea of loyalty when my feelings excuse certain types of behavior or my desire for greater experiences give me permission to hop back and forth between organization or events or commitments or, or my money means it's, it's all mine. I don't have to be generous with it. Or my sexual needs means that I don't need to be faithful to my spouse or my idea of happiness or my future plans all take precedence with little or no consideration to other people. To be loyal is to be faithful to one's commitments Oaths and obligations, regardless of how you feel about it in the moment. It's easy to say you're loyal, but your loyalty is truly tested when you want to do something else. But in the moment, you choose to stay loyal. So, are you a loyal person? Loyalty takes many different forms, doesn't it? I remember my grandfather displayed loyalty in a certain type of way. He was loyal to the company of General Motors. He wouldn't be caught dead driving anything Japanese or European. Buicks, Oldsmobiles, Chevrolets, all of them white. And that brought him into a place of having some great cars over the years and a couple that weren't so great, but he was loyal, even to a fault sometimes. And there's still something that I respected about that type of loyalty. There's a young man in the army one time who confided in his chaplain that he never went about town with another girl if he was within 50 miles of his hometown where his girlfriend was. His loyalty extended 50 miles. I wonder how far your loyalty extends. What happens is when we put our faith in Jesus, he comes, he forgives us of our sins, God comes rushing into your life. There's overwhelming grace, grace so glorious that we've been singing about this morning. There's love, there's forgiveness, there's salvation. And in a display of ultimate loyalty, God adopts you as one of his children, the Bible tells us. Now God could just remain in really unique and profound relationship with you, but he even goes one step further, the ultimate step of loyalty, and he says, you are part of my family. I'm taking you once who were far off and making you my own. I'm adopting you as my child. You will never be left alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. You'll never be alone again. 
I wonder if we reciprocate that type of loyalty to him. Do you remember what the Israelites failed to remember? His great and mighty saving works in your life. Do you recall the wonderful care that God has exercised toward you? Even when you personally feel like going another direction. Do you recognize his power over your circumstances when it just seems that all of the circumstances would lead you to something that is unfaithful? And yet, do you remember? Are you loyal? Because when you turn on God, this is the first step of becoming your own worst enemy. We see that Israel takes another step down the path and they submit themselves to the rule of another. So look with me at chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And it says this. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went, Jerubbabel is Gideon. Now Abimelech, the son of Gideon, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and he said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? That all the 70 sons of Jerubbabel rule over you? Or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these things, all these words on behalf, in the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-beerith, which is in which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Aphra, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And then all the leaders of Shechem came together at Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. So Abimelech comes on the scene. Abimelech is one of the sons of Gideon, but he's not one of the legitimate sons of Gideon by his wives, which he had many wives and 70 sons. Gideon, or Abimelech is the son of his concubine, which is one of his servant girls. So he is a foreigner in this regard, and he comes on the scene. He convinces the people of the land to make him the king. Who's better for you, to have all of those sons try to duke it out for king or to let me be your king? Because I'm of your tribe, I'm of your people, he says to the leaders of Shechem. They agree that, hey, it's good to have one of our relatives be the king, and so they give him money from the temple of the foreign god, and he goes, hires worthless and reckless fellows, and kills the sons of Gideon. And it says it so concisely in a verse or two, but if you just pause for a moment and try to imagine the scene. As Abimelech enters the village, so worthless and reckless fellows go in one by one, bringing the 70 sons of Gideon out and slaughtering them for everybody to see on the stone in the middle of the town. And the next one, and the next one, and the bodies are being brought off and piled up. And the scene 
is one that would come out of a horror film. And you begin to, your think, you begin to think to yourself, if you really consider what happens here, how could anybody do such a thing? And why would the people of this town and this area submit themselves to a ruler like that? What is going on here? And the answer is that this is constituting the spiritual degradation of Israel. Their continual rejection of God and his ways results in their pursuit of an earthly king. And this earthly king, Abimelech, is set up in contrast to the person of God himself. And he's set up to the judges who had come before him. In contrast to the person of God himself, he is in opposition because Israel is not supposed to have an earthly king. God is supposed to be their king. And Gideon himself verbalized this, but the problem with Gideon's actions was that he led them down the path toward desiring a king. I mean, after all, Gideon says, I will not be your king. God will be your king, but then give me all your money (laughs) so I can set up myself as the one to control worship. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to have all these 70 sons, and I'm going to name the last one of them Abimelech, which means son of the king. Gideon says, I won't be a king, but I'll call my son, son of the king. He led them right up to the precipice before he passed. And his son, Abimelech, continues in his father's sin, and he seeks to take God's place and rule over his people. But Gideon is also set up in opposition to the other judges that, became, that came before him. He becomes, in one sense, the anti-judge. These rulers that we've seen throughout this whole book are deliverers of God for the people to deliver them from oppression from the outside. But now the oppression is coming from inside the camp. Abimelech becomes the one who will oppress them. And the result, or this is the result, we should say, of their ongoing rejection of God. The outward oppression can very quickly turn into inner anarchy as you reap what you sow. Israel now has their king, Abimelech. They're farther down the road of the spiritual degradation. And in fact, they have become their own worst enemy. When you turn from God, you become your own worst enemy. And here's the result. The result we see in chapter, or chapter 9, verse 7 and on. Follow with me as we read of this fable that the last son, Jotham, Exclaims. He says in verse 7, when it was told to Jotham, now Jotham was the son that was hiding while the other 69 sons were killed. When it was told to Jotham, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim and he cried aloud and he said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine which cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? And then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. 
And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel in his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you've risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men, on one stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, the king, over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative, If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Be'er and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. So the last son remains. The picture is one as the king is taking hold of the village. Abimelech has been crowned. And off in the distance in the, in the mountain, on Mount Gerizim, they hear the voice of the young son, the one who escaped. And he tells them a fable. And the fable is really a curse. And this is the point. It's, it's, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Trees holding rain over each other and nobody really wants the rule. And what does it all mean? I think we get to the crux of it by really asking two simple questions that reveal the absurdity of the fable. Number one would be, how can trees get shade from a thorn bush? They can't. So when the Bramble bush says to the trees, come and take in my shade. It's revealing just how absurd this situation really is. And number two, how can fire come out of the bramble bush and burn the entire forest? It can't. That's absurd. The whole point of Jotham's fable is this, that since the trees of Shechem, the people of Shechem, have done this absurd thing by making a thorn bush their king, Abimelech, then perhaps the absurdity will just continue and fire will consume them all. (laughs) Both the trees and the forest. And the curse is really a pronouncement of forthcoming judgment. Since the outcomes have already been played out, they've been committed by the people of Shechem. They've already made Abimelech their king, and they have not been acting in good faith and integrity. And so God takes up Jotham's cause. He intervenes, and he inserts an evil spirit. He orchestrates vengeance on all of these parties involved, and it ultimately leads to their destruction. And this is where the downfall of Abimelech happens in verses 22 to 57. Just look at the text with me. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to summarize the main points for you. What happens next is that God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people he's ruling, the people of Shechem. His reign over these people is a very short reign of just three years before this spirit is injected. And at first, the people of Shechem began to display that their anarchy is reigning. They begin to hijack robbers along the road that goes through their town. 
And then a man named Gaul rises up and tries to overthrow Abimelech and take the kingdom for himself. Abimelech responds in violence and he wars against Gaul. He burns down the tower of Shechem. By the way, that's the tower of his own town and kills a thousand of his own people. He's turned against them. Then he goes to the town of Thebes and he encamps around the city and he tries to take down the strong tower of that city until a woman throws a millstone over the side. It hits him on the head. He has one of his servants kill him because he doesn't want to be killed by a woman and he dies. Anarchy reigns in the land. The people are warring against themselves. They are officially their own worst enemy. And the summary Look with me, chapter 9, verses 55 through 57. It says in verse 55 that when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. And thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. The false king dies. They're warring against themselves. God exacts vengeance on the parties who killed the innocent people. Anarchy is reigning. Israel is its own worst enemy. When you turn on God, you become your own worst enemy. There's no feel good to this story at all because it's supposed to be a warning. (laughs) It's not supposed to feel good to be warned. And in this way, we ask ourselves the question, do we ever feel like our own worst enemy? I mean, there's certainly ways that we can apply this text to nations, right? Nations that have turned against God and become their own worst enemy. It can more accurately maybe apply to people, groups of people, or even churches, When people turn against God, they become their own worst enemy. But you know, one thing that's really interesting about this is that there's no outward miraculous judgment of God. Do you notice how quiet, seemingly quiet, the judgment is? People turn against God, and over the course of three years, through what is seemingly practical human events, God is judging them. I mean, we often think of God's judgment as God coming, announcing his presence on the scene, raining down fire and brimstone, and everybody knows that is God judging those people. But this is quiet. This happens over time. This happens through natural human events. And Judges 9 also teaches us that evil has no lasting cohesion, (laughs) Three years is a very short amount of time in the scheme of a reign of a king. But when the people have walked on this path of evil and they all eventually end up turning on themselves, the fire goes and to consume all of them to follow the fable, there's no lasting cohesion in evil. If you take that step down the road in your life, then know that ultimately loyalty is not shared among people of evil. Loyalty is shared only with the self. And most people who walk down that path end up alone. This text is written to a group of people. And so we gotta be careful how we apply it individually. But there are a couple of encouragements I think that we take away here. Number one is very simple and very direct. B 
be loyal to God. Be loyal to God. We spoke about this earlier. To be loyal is to be faithful to one's commitments or oaths or obligations, regardless of how you feel about it in the moment. He is worthy to be loyal to. And when we're not, we become our own worst enemy. The second would be to guard against hatred. Hatred is not talked about directly in this text, but it's interwoven throughout. I mean, Abimelech's hatred toward God puts him in a position to be the king instead of God. And Abimelech's hatred toward his earthly father brings him to a place where he kills his 69 of his 70 brothers. And then he turns and starts to kill people of his own tribe. Harry Emerson Fosdick once said that a man who hates to be slapped on the back goes home one day and packs his coat with TNT. And he waits for that man who always slaps him on his back. He says, when he hits me, I'll get him. I will blow him up. But hate kills both the person you hate and it kills yourself. Functioning in hatred is like burning down your own house just to try to kill a rat. The third thing that we're encouraged with in this is that we can know in this story that God is the sovereign king overall, despite what it looks like on the ground. There are not a lot of stories of God's vengeance in the Bible. But there are a couple, and this is one of them. And they're there, not, not to tell you that every time you sin, God is going to exact vengeance on you. <laughs> not to discourage you in the struggles of ongoing life. But they are there to warn us and to show us that God is ultimately the sovereign king who is just. Vengeance against Abimelech and the people of Shechem for their injustice against his brothers shows that God is just and that he is the earthly king who reigns over all even when it looks like evil is reigning among the people. So you can be faithful. When evil appears that it is in control, know that God hasn't taken a vacation, know that God isn't absent, there's temptation to doubt, there's temptation to go a different way, there's temptation to despair or even adopt the evil practices around you as normative for your life, but know that when the earthly kings of the world or the presidents or the governors or the mayors or the leaders are evil, that there is a leader who is just. And so we can follow him. I mean, certainly this was the hope of Christians throughout centuries, right? We look at history and we see examples of this. Christians in Nazi Germany must have felt the temptation to fall, fall prey or sway with the land around them. And many of them did. Christians in oppressive totalitarian state of China must have felt this way. In smaller contexts, this could extend to you. It could extend in your school, your workplace, or even in the confines of your very own family. But know that when people choose the path of the world around them, this does not negate God's sovereign work. He might allow them to get what they deserve, but nevertheless, his kingship is shown as solid and established over due course. Be warned. When you turn on God, you become your own worst enemy. And as I think about these ideas and how they come together, 
of being my own worst enemy, <laughs> the idea of loyalty, the idea of a relationship with God, and baptism that we're going to experience in just a minute. I think about the fact that all of us in some ways are our own worst enemy, aren't we? That our sin creates in us a sense in which we become our own worst enemy, and yet God and his ultimate loyalty frees us from that dynamic. Romans chapter 6 is a text that we often talk about with regard to baptism, and it actually uses the phrase that we are slaves to sin before we come to faith in Christ. To be a slave means you can't help but do it. You're compelled, even against your desires sometimes, to sin. And in this way, we keep on sinning, and we keep on sinning, and we keep on sinning. We're slaves to it. That's our nature. And as such, we are our own worst enemy. But God enters the scene through the person of Jesus who dies, who is buried, who rises again. And as his resurrection power is displayed for people, he does something incredible. Not only does he forgive them of the sins, but he frees them from that slavery, it says in Romans 6. That they are no longer slaves to sin because of this ultimate act of loyalty of the Lord Jesus. And so in response to that, we live in gospel loyalty to him. And that's what baptism is really all about. It's displaying God's loyalty to us. As you go under the water, it symbolizes death and burial. As you come out of the water, it symbolizes new life and a freedom from slavery. <laughs> and the Christian who stands in the waters of baptism says, I'm going to follow the Lord all of the days of my life. I'm going to follow him with everything I have. He has been so loyal to me that I'm going to be loyal to him as well. So we'll ask Pastor Chris and Pastor Marty and our baptismal candidates to come on out today and express this level of loyalty.